All right, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As I said, we are starting a new series here in 1 Peter. We'll journey our way verse uh, by verse through this uh, great book of the Bible. Uh, This book, uh, just as a way of just a recap of the whole book, and we'll get into it more and more. Uh, Really, the themes, there's two major themes in this book. We see, even as Jonathan read this morning, it starts with the word grace. You'll see at the very end in chapter 5, it ends with the word grace and sprinkled throughout this book is this theme about God's grace. And this morning we'll look uh, really where it all starts. All of God's grace starts here in these two uh, verses. Um, But God's grace is what is going to be the central theme for us. And understanding God's grace for us will help us when it comes through the the middle part of this uh, book. The middle part of the book throughout is about uh, just suffering. God allows his people to go through suffering. And how do we withstand suffering? It's only through the grace of Jesus Christ. And we'll look uh, verse by verse through all of this. And so uh, we have a great uh, honor and privilege to get to read this book here in First Peter. First uh, Peter, um, this is a very scary place to start this chapter. I was telling John this this week, uh, that where we'll start is kind of the, the firm bedrock for all the rest of this book. Um, and this is one of the reasons that for me, I teach verse by verse through um, books of the Bible. When, we, when I came several months ago to First uh, Peter, I was reading through the book of First Peter and got captivated by the central uh, theme, which is God's grace. Um, but this morning, this, that what we'll talk about is the doctrine of election. Uh, and so it's scary to talk about election. Election is one of those things uh, that has gotten a bad rap in the church. But we see here in chapter 1, verse 1, it starts with election. And so I'll walk through what is election? What is the doctrine of election? Uh, So many people have gotten that idea of the doctrine of election and uh, perverted it and robbed it of its greatness. Um, I'm so grateful for election and what that means for me as a believer and what election means for you as a believer. And so uh, our tendency as pastors, my tendency is to come to a passage like this and read the word election and think, man, I, I've got to stay clear of that because election uh, ruffles people's feathers. Uh, but to be true to God's word, I must and we must hear and respond to this uh, idea of the doctrine of election. And so I'll walk through uh, that and I'm sure it's going to ca- uh, stir in us and invoke emotions in us. Uh, and if you have any questions or comments, just email me. I'll be happy to uh, uh, engage in a discussion with you about the doctrine election. So I'm going to try to walk us through what is the doctrine election to uh, set us up really for the next five um, chapters. It's going to take us about 22 to 24 weeks to walk us verse by verse through this book. But I believe, again, uh, that God uses God's Word to redeem people and to use people to glorify Himself. And as we glorify Him, people will be drawn to us and ultimately to him. And so uh, I want to look at that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we start this great uh, book, uh, First Peter. 
God, it is with much fear and trembling I come before you and before your people. And God, I, I beg you in this moment uh, that this passage and this um, teaching would not be of wise or persuasive words, but it would be in, dem- the, in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And you, Holy Spirit, would use this word to really bring us to a fuller understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ means and what it means for us as individuals and what it means for us as a redeemed uh, church of people uh, that have been redeemed and called uh, to you and by you. And so, God, this morning, uh, have your way in this place. Uh, Use us in a very, very powerful way. Use uh, this passage to set us free. It's in Christ's mighty name I pray. Amen. We'll work our way through verse 1 through uh, verse 2. Just two small verses. And so let's look at the very first verse. And so it's broken down into, this message is broken down into two categories. The first one is the author, and the second is the audience. And so uh, let's see who is writing this book. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Many scholars uh, have debated who really wrote this book, um, but we've got to take God's word for God's word, and God says that Peter wrote it. Some of the scholars say that Peter didn't write the book because at the end of the, of the, of the book, in chapter 5, that it says that uh, Silas uh, helped write the book. He may have helped wrote, write the book, actually written the book, but it was Peter who or, um, orated the book to Silas to actually pen the book. Other people say it can't be Peter because uh, as we see in Acts, it says that Peter was an uneducated man. And if you read the book of First Peter, um, the Greek, if you could read in the Greek, which I cannot, I'm not a Greek scholar, but Greek scholars would say if you read it uh, in the native uh, language, that it's too uh, eloquent for it to be uh, from an uneducated man. But if you look again at Acts chapter 2, where Peter gets up and the Holy Spirit falls on Peter at Pentecost, and P- uh, Peter proclaims uh, outside of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons to ever be preached, the, the preaching of uh, Pentecost, it is an amazing, amazing message that Peter, an uneducated man, wrote. And so I believe that Peter wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have to believe, and I believe that the Bible is totally inspired by God, and I believe that the Holy Spirit fell on Peter as Peter began to write this book. And so it's from Peter. Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. Not only was Peter one of his disciples, but Peter was one of his closest disciples. We th- see throughout the, the Gospels that there's three men, Peter, James, and John. Uh, they call it the, the, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, PB&J, uh, of the New Testament. That they sat with Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus went, these three men went with him. And so Peter had an eyewitness account of all the grace that Jesus had bestowed on his people. And so Peter is writing not as a man like Paul, who Paul came to know Christ on the road to Damascus and had revelation from Jesus on that road, but Peter is a man that walked with Christ for three and a half years. And so Peter has an eyewitness account of who Jesus was, and he's going to write about that. He's going to write about the grace of Christ through this book. Uh, The scholars say that it was when Peter was late in his life, almost at the end, where Peter was hung up or crucified upside down in Rome. And so it's about 65 A.D., 65 years after uh, Christ had come. 
Uh, Peter's in Rome where he's about to die and he's writing this letter uh, to uh, what Jonathan read to the elect, the exiles. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but here's Peter, an uh, uh, uneducated man that is writing through his own personal experience. And of all the things that Peter could have written about in those, uh, these five chapters plus um, Second Peter, he doesn't write about his experience of Jesus. That had already been written. He helped Mark write that. And in the book of, uh, many people believe that the Gospel of Mark was also written with Peter, sitting there telling the stories, his gospel stories, if you will, to Mark, who Mark is then writing it out for uh, the Gentiles there in uh, the gospel of Mark. And so he says, I am Peter. I am the disciple who walked with Christ. I was one of his closest companions. Many scholars believe that Peter, though he wasn't Jesus' closest disciple, we know that to be John, because in John, John says that I'm the beloved disciple. And so John and Jesus, Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, looks at John and says to John, you're going to take care of my mom. Mom, you're going to take care of him as if you were to take care of me. So we know that Peter wasn't his closest disciple, but we, throughout history, there's a belief that Peter was the spokesperson for all the disciples. And so here Peter is, the spokesperson for all the disciples, is penning this letter, and he says, that's who I am. I'm Peter. I'm the one that walked with Jesus and writing you this letter. And then he uses this word. He says, not only am I Peter, but I'm what? An apostle of Jesus Christ. That's so important to, to underline your Bible. What does the word apostle mean? The word apostle simply means a messenger. He says, I am Peter, a messenger of Jesus Christ. So he's saying with great authority, I have the authority from Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, to give you this message, the message of the grace of Jesus Christ. Christ. And if you think about the message of grace, probably no other disciple in, um, in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, knows more about grace than Peter. Um, if you know anything about Peter, Peter had a, uh, a foot-shaped mouth. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. Always. Uh, Peter was always talking before he thought. I don't know if anyone else can identify with that, but I'm like, man, I'm like Peter. I tend to talk way more than I think. If I would just slow down and think, I wouldn't say half the dumb things I say. And that's Peter. And so all throughout these three years that Jesus is with Peter and Peter is with Jesus, he is giving Peter grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to the ultimate act of grace. If you remember, Peter had been walking with Jesus and he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus is coming to his disciples and says, it's now time for me to be crucified. And Peter goes and jumps in front of Jesus. I don't know what Peter was thinking that moment to rebuke the Son of God, but he rebuked Jesus. Uh, you remember that? He said, no way, Lord. There's no way that you can do that. And Peter uh, said to by Jesus, hey, get me behind me, Satan. I've got a task to do. You, Peter, cannot stand in my way. And then they have another dialogue a few moments later. And and Peter says, okay, if that's the case, then, man, Jesus, wherever you go, I'll go. And you remember the story. P Jesus looks at Peter and says to Peter, hey, by the end of the evening, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to tell people you have no idea who I am. You're making this promise that you'll go wherever I go and you'll be with me throughout the, 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 these next few moments through my death. But I promise you, Peter, you will deny me. You'll tell people you have no idea who I am. And then what happens? Jesus is led away. Uh, Peter goes somewhat crazy, tries to cut off 
this dude's ear. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on the guy's face, which would have been awesome to see. Uh, this, I, I always think the ear was flopping around like a dead fish, but I'm like, the ear probably wasn't flopping around. It was probably just laying on the ground. Jesus picked it up and slapped it on. I don't, I don't really know how it went. But my image is like it's flopping ear. I don't, I, that's, I'm, not, I'm, I'm uh, speaking before I'm thinking. I just need to keep going. And so here's Peter with Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me, and Peter says, no way. And Jesus is led away, and we see that little, the girl in the courtyard say, hey, you've got to be one of them. And Peter says, no way. And he does it two more times, and it says in the Gospels that Jesus was so close to Peter that when he denied him the last time, that Jesus actually looked into the eyes of Peter. Could you imagine that moment that Peter denied Jesus the last time and Jesus hears denial and looks Peter dead in the face? And what does it say? But Peter, man, broke down and began to weep when he heard uh, the, the rooster crow for that, that, that last time. And then Peter goes and it says that Jesus returns and in that moment, here's one of the moments of grace that Jesus pours out on Peter. Remember, that he'd already uh, died, gone to the tomb, arises from the tomb, and he sees Peter right before he goes back to heaven, ascends uh, after the 40 days, and he looks at Peter, and he says to Peter, okay, Peter, I want to restore you. I want to give you grace. My grace will cover your disgrace. My grace will cover your uh, denial of me. And he says three times. It's not by coincidence that Jesus, that Peter denied Jesus three times, and three times Jesus asked him the same question. Do you really love me, Peter? Do you really love me? And Peter says, of course, of course, you know I love you. I know you love me. I know you love me. And in that moment, God's grace through Christ forgives Peter of his denial. And then it's said of Peter in Acts that God used Peter in a powerful way. And I believe it's out of the grace of Christ that, that Peter was used at the day of Pentecost that thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ because of what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. And that is the man that wrote this book. That no other man, in my opinion, would understand what grace truly is. And I, I pray that would be true for us. I pray for us, even before we get into uh, these next few verses, this idea of who Peter is writing to, do we understand grace the way that Peter did? Because the same grace that was poured out on Peter, if you're a believer, has been poured out on you. For you and I, we have denied Christ over and over and over and over again. We may not deny him with our words the way Peter did, but a lot of us deny Christ with our actions and have denied him with our actions, and yet that same grace is poured out over you and I, and it comes out of what we'll teach on here in this next verse and a half. It's the idea of election. So what does election mean? He says, Peter, it says, here's who I am, and now here's who I write to. I write to who? Those who are elect, underlying that in your Bible, uh, and the exiles, the elect exiles. And if you remember uh, what we just studied through in Nehemiah, it's the same word, this same word of uh, exiles is used back in the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is full of God's people being sent into exile. And so, but what's different about this terminology 
is that these aren't people that were sent into exile because of persecution uh, and the way that the Old Testament were led into exile. These are believers who are now, because of their belief in who Christ is, are living in a world, and the world is leading them into being exiles. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. When you and I live for Jesus Christ and we make a bold statement for who Christ is, we will live in exile. We will be so different from the world that the world will want to exile us. And so that's who Peter is talking to. Peter is talking about Christ followers who are living in such a unique way in the world and place that God has placed them that they are as if they are exiles in their own town. And he gives uh, those cities. Now Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These, if you look at a map, it, it would be a circle. And so uh, Peter's writing to these people, and it goes uh, from the, the southernmost place, and it makes a circle, if you will, uh, back around. So uh, what Peter is saying, all these churches, all these people uh, that are living for Christ are living in exile. And this is kind of how they think the book was passed, from this city on to the very last city and made it back uh, in, a, in a full circle. And he says, hey, I'm writing to the elect, to the exiles in dispersia. And so, for us, what does it mean? What is this idea of election? The first thing I want to look at, the source of election. Like This is important. Where does election come from? Where does this idea of election come from? It comes from this idea of God's sovereignty. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, which uh, the word sovereignty simply means superior power and authority. So if we believe that God has all the authority and all the power, then we'll believe in election. You cannot believe uh, in the sovereignty of God and not believe in election. It's either God is sovereign over in control of all things or he's not over anything. You cannot say that God is sovereign and has all the source and all the power over everything, but not over that of election or what we would say salvation. So he's either in control of all things or he's not in control of all things. He cannot say, we cannot say, yes, God is in control of everything but this one thing. And so many people want to say that. So many want to, want to say, because we can't wrap our minds and our hearts around that, man, God wouldn't choose some people to come to heaven. But that is the reality. That is the promise that we see throughout all of Scripture. It started way back in the Old Testament, that who were the people of God? Israel were what? The chosen people of God, that God chose Israel. Israel did not choose God. God chose Israel. And so the source of our election is God himself. We see this, you can turn over to John chapter 6. Verse 44. Hold your place in 1 Peter, I promise we'll get back there. Uh, John chapter 6 verse 44 says this. He's talking to his disciples and he says this in verse 23. Or verse 43, excuse me. Jesus answered them in verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. Here's verse 44. No one can come to me unless who? Underline that. The Father who sent me what draws him and I will raise him, the person that God 
draws up on the last day, as is written to the prophets, and, I, uh, and, and they will all be taught by God. So we see in verse, uh, verse 44, no one can come to Christ unless who? God draws them. So the source of our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Christ draws all people to himself. Flip over to John chapter 13. And John chapter 13 is another verse, and there's uh, throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, verse after verse after verse that points to God's election, or God's salvation, or God's choosing. John 13, 18 says this. He says this in uh, the passage. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scriptures will be fulfilled. He who uh, ate my bread and lifted his heel against me. He's saying in that verse, I am not speaking to everyone. I'm only speaking to what? Those whom I choose. And who does the choosing? God does the choosing. How does God do the choosing? It comes out of the next verse uh, in chapter 2. So he's saying, here's the exiles that I've chosen and how have I chosen them? It says it in verse 2. According to what the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, we hate that word, I'm sure. Or the word predestination is another word. That God has the foreknowledge or the awareness of something before it existed. And so, uh, do we believe in the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge of God? Do we believe that God is in all control of everything and has all the knowledge of everything? It's not just that God has all the, the, the control of everything, and not all the, the knowledge of everything or vice versa. It's not that, that God knows all things and can't do anything about it. Or that God has all the power and does nothing about it. It's both. Both and. We have to believe in the sovereignty, the power of God, and we also have to believe in the foreknowledge of God. And those two things are coupled together that are the source of our salvation. That God is using all of his, all of his power and all of his knowledge to draw those to himself. I'll get to the end of the analogy since it's opening day in football here in a minute. Mark that in your Bibles. I promise, uh, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, the, the, uh, the idea of election has a lot to do with football. I promise I'll get there. You might think, this guy's crazy. But I promise we'll get there. So God's foreknowledge, the awareness of everything but uh, when it happens. Here's the great uh, beauty of God's sovereignty and foreknowledge when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to his choosing. Um, these are three things that we see. Um, this is the beauty of uh, election or uh, foreknowledge or sovereignty. Uh, first, uh, first thing, it, 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 if we don't believe in these two things, if we don't believe in the foreknowledge of God and the sovereignty of God, what happens? It makes man sovereign and not God. If we don't believe in foreknowledge and we don't believe in sovereignty, who's it, who's it going to be left up to? It's going to be left up to man. That now man has all the knowledge and all the power to come and draw near to God. Our salvation has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God's power and God's knowing. We do not know what's best for us. Amen? My best thinking leads me to disaster every 
single time. Yet God's best thinking for me, God's plan for me, leads me to salvation every time. The next thing, that's the first thing. If I don't believe in the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge of God, then it makes me have all the foreknowledge and all the sovereignty. I promise this, you don't want me in control. And I promise this, I don't want you in control. The next thing it does, if we don't believe in the foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God, it gives man, it gives man credit for their salvation. If I don't believe that God foreknew and God drew and God had the power to draw, then I leave all the power up to man. That, that, that all the power in salvation is left into man. That man has the best choice and that man can make his own decision to come to God. See, here's the truth about this idea of election, about what we're talking about, about who we really are. Uh, we are dead in our transgressions, is what Paul says. I don't know any dead person that makes any movement towards anything. And so if I'm a dead man in my transgressions, I must what, before I ever make a decision, I must what, come to life. And the only way I come to life is by God choosing to resurrect me the same way that he did Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus came out of the tomb not of his own power. It was by the call of God on Lazarus. He said into Lazarus in the tomb, hey you, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And it was the words of God that gave the power to, uh, to uh, Lazarus to rise up out of the tomb. The same way that when he calls you, Jack, he calls you, Robert, he calls you. He called you when you were dead and said, hey, you, Paul, raise up. And the breath of God, the same way that it was in Genesis chapter 3, when the breath of God was breathed into Adam before Adam ever walked, is what gave Adam the power to raise up and begin to walk. Adam was sitting there all made right, except he had one thing lacking, the breath of God in him, and God breathed life, it tells us in Genesis chapter 3, into him, and that's what gave him the power to raise and to walk. The knowledge of God and the power of God are the sovereignty of God. Here's the last thing that we know to be true, is this. If I don't believe that in the sovereignty and the foreknowledge of God, then this happens, then I must believe that unbelieving, unrepented, uh, unrepented believers seek God. But Romans 3.11 tells us this, no one seeks God. Let me say that again. In Romans chapter 3.11, it says, no, none are righteous. No, none seek God. You see, an unbeliever cannot seek after God. God. It says this in Psalms that the prayers of an unbeliever aren't even heard by God. And so sovereignty and the will of God and the foreknowledge of God and the election of God's people all starts with Him being the source. Which then in turn, if we believe in the sovereignty of God and we believe in the power of God, who ends up getting all the glory for our salvation? God and God alone. Because if I believe that man can come to God, then there's some benefit that I have to give to man and give some glory to man that, man, thank God he made the right choice. Oh, thank God that guy decided. Which robs God of his ultimate glory, his ultimate power, his ultimate calling. 
And so then I say, okay, if God has done it all, then no, man doesn't get any glory. God gets all the glory. Do I believe that to be true in my own life? I did nothing to come to Christ other than being dead and God choosing me in his divine power, his divine sovereignty. I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me. That's not how I would do it, but that's how the word of God says it happened. So that's the source. And we'll skip the um, quote just for time. Uh, the next thing that we see. So the source is God. The provider is the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the same way that it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God, before anything was created, was hovering all over the place. So we have God the Father, but we also have God the Spirit. This is a beautiful passage here in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, uh, about the triune God, the, the Trinity, if you will. will. God the Father, we'll see God the Son in a moment, and we see God the Holy Spirit. So here, God the Father has the plan of salvation, and now we see the provider of that salvation comes through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, gives us salvation it's carried out by the holy spirit how do we see how do we know that in verse two it says according to the foreknowledge of god uh the father in the what the sanctification of the spirit what's the word sanctification mean the sanctification is just the setting apart the holy spirit has taken the plan of god who will be saved who will come to know god he's got that plan and now the holy spirit goes out and executes the plan. The Holy Spirit now goes to the people that God has chosen to come to know Him and does it through what we call sanctification. He, he um, sets apart those who will be saved from those who won't be saved. But it's through the Holy Spirit that's doing the sanctification. It's not I don't do the sanctification. I'm not the one that separates. I'm not the one that knows and chooses. It's God's plan accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And here's how it's accomplished. Here is how election, or here is how salvation is accomplished. It first comes that the Holy Spirit gives the person uh, what we would call uh, regeneration, rebirth. The Holy Spirit is the one that has seen the plan and uses that plan and ejects into the unbeliever, the dead person, what we call rebirth or new birth. That the, the rebirth is presented into the man or woman by the Holy Spirit, which leads them to uh, a place of faith. I awaken and I have this faith, and this faith has not come unto me of myself, but the Holy Spirit has now given me a faith that rests in me, that I have a faith that there is a God much bigger than me that awakens my heart to what we would call repentance. Okay, I have been reborn, I am awakened, now I have a faith, a faith opens my eyes to see that I must need something because I'm desperate for something called repentance. Repentance is turning from sin to God, but that only happens through being awakened to my sin through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then empowers me with faith to repent. In and of myself, I don't want to repent. In and of yourself, you don't want to repent. How do I know that? I've got a one-year-old and a five-year-old. They hate repentance, and so do I. But the Holy Spirit enables me to come to a place of repentance. It's called conviction. Outside of the Holy Spirit, I don't have conviction, nor do you, nor does any other 
believer. Unbelievers have no conviction because they have no Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what leads me to repentance through conviction, which lastly, after I'm reborn and have faith implanted in me and I repent, it's what Paul calls adoption. It's my repentance turning from sin that now I'm adopted into the family of God. That is salvation. Uh, rebirth, uh, faith, repentance, and ultimately adoption that leads me to be, what, a child of God. But that happens because God's plan is invoked through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working in me, not me working with the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to what we would call sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming more and more and more and more like Christ, which is what he says. I'll skip a part. We'll come back for the obedience of Christ. So, so for the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, um, for obedience to God. But it happens through what? It happens through my assurance in who Christ Jesus is. I'll get back to uh, the effect of my uh, sanctification to close the passage. So I'm awakened to now, okay, I'm awakened. Now I have the assurance of my salvation because I know what the sprinkling of bl blood really means. It has an Old Testament connotation. The Old Testament uh, was all about uh, the covenant. We saw that through Nehemiah, that the covenant was God taking blood and shedding it for people for the forgiveness of sins. And it says that here in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, what? For the sprinkling of his blood. That's how I come into election. So uh, God has a plan. It's carried uh, uh, out by the Holy Spirit, and it's accomplished through the life and death of Jesus Christ. So I need God the Father to have the plan. I need the plan to come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the plan to Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus does for me what I cannot do for myself. Here's the illustration. It's corny as all get out. You'll laugh, but I hope you never forget it. It's like football. Election is like football. God is the head coach. God, from before the game ever happened, the head coach, any great head coach, what, has a game plan. As cruddy as a coach he is, or man, he's a great head coach. Nick Saban, Nick Saban has a game plan when he goes in to play his opponent, correct? He's got a game plan. He knows almost to the T, the, the, the first 50 plays of the game. And so what does he do? He then takes his game plan and talks to what? His two uh, coordinators, the defensive and offensive coordinator, that for us is the Holy Spirit. He takes the plan to the coordinators and says, hey, here's the plan. Here's what has to happen for us to win the game. And so those coordinators do what? They come up with the way that it's going to happen, and they become the signal caller, if you will. They, they signal in the play that's coming from the head coach. The Holy Spirit then takes that play and gives the signal to Christ, or they give the signal to the team. The team for us is Christ, who accomplishes the task, Christ Jesus. Christ is the ultimate quarterback, if you will. And so, therefore, God has the plan. The Holy Spirit has uh, the, the, the plan that goes to the plays, the play is the redeemed people that is accomplished through the life and death of Jesus Christ. All you and I are in the realm of salvation, we're just the football. The football has no say in where it goes. The football is put on the ground, hiked between some dude's legs into the hands of another guy, handed off our pass. 
All we are in salvation is the football. Let that sink in your head. But here's the deal. God has a plan for our life. He's going to tell the Holy Spirit that plan for our life. And then it's going to be accomplished through the work and death of Jesus Christ. Amen? I guess not. Everyone's like, uh, my football, go Patriots. Which gives us the assurance of our salvation, of our election, that Christ has done for me what I could not do on the cross by forgiving me of my sins. I cannot do that. You cannot do that. Whoever came up with that stupid line, hey, just forgive yourself, is the most ridiculous person in the world. You cannot forgive yourself. If I could forgive myself, then I wouldn't need Christ to do anything for me. I need God, through Christ Jesus, to be the ultimate assurer of my salvation through the finished work of the power of Christ on the cross that did for me what I cannot accomplish on my own. I needed Christ to accomplish it for me. Therefore, I have no say in my salvation. But here's where the flip side to the coin is. I have no uh, say in my redemption, but I do have say in my sanctification. What I mean by that is, when God calls you to himself, he then is going to call you to live a life separate from other people. It's the effect, if you will, of our sanctification, of our uh, redemption. And what is that? It says back in the chapter, for what? You have been called, you have been sanctified, you have been redeemed for one purpose. For what? Obedience to Christ Jesus. My purpose in being redeemed by the blood of Christ is for the obedience to Christ Jesus. And so you and I know if we're saved, if we have a life of ongoing obedience. If you and I don't have a life of ongoing obedience, we must take this passage very seriously and say, man, I may not be redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because it says in 1 John chapter uh, 2, let's turn over to 1 John chapter 2. Just about five pages to the right. Maybe ten pages, sorry. Or whatever your Bible is, it could be 20 if you have large writing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. He says this, And by this we, believers, know that we have come to know Him. Who's Him? Christ. If we what? If we keep His commandments. If we obey His commandments. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know Him, but not keep His commandments, is what? A liar. And what the truth is not in Him. The truth is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the truth. And so if I say I'm a believer, but I don't live a life of obedience, a life that shows that I'm walking with the Lord, then the truth isn't in me. If the truth isn't in me, I may not be a believer, is what this passage says. And so is it true in your life, is it true in my life, that I live a pattern of obedience rather than a pattern of disobedience? Yes, we will disobey God. I'm not talking about perfection. There is only one that's perfect, it's Christ Jesus. But does my life show two things? A life of obedience and a life of repentance. Because if I live a life of obedience, then repentance will follow when I'm disobeying. Because it says, I'll keep God's word. God's word says, when I disobey, I repent. And so my life, your life, is a life of obedience that shows that we live a life of repentance, that shows we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Is that true for us? 
this morning. The doctrine of election is a big deal. It is a huge deal. And so for us as believers, it comes now to this last passage, this last phrase. May grace and peace be multiplied in you. May the grace and peace of God be multiplied in you. Why would it be multiplied in me? It'd be multiplied in me when I have this realization that God did for me what I could not do for myself when I was yet a sinner far from God, dead in my trespasses, that God in His marvelous light called me from death to life. When I begin to understand that and that begins to resonate in my life and in my heart, then what will happen? I will have a better understanding of the full grace of God and the full mercies of God and the full peace of God dwells in me. Therefore, it will multiply in my life when I have a better understanding that God chose me. I did not choose Him. That then evokes something in my heart day in and day out. Holy cow! God called me. Did you hear that? If you're a believer, you had nothing to do with your salvation. God and His sovereign will chose you. I don't know the reason He hasn't chosen other people. I just know He chose you if you're a believer. And that ought to evoke something in our heart that says, holy cow, the grace of God has been poured out all over my life. The mercy of God has been poured out all over my life. Therefore, I have the peace of God in my life. Now, I can't tell you the reason that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. I don't know. That is up to God. Maybe one day I'll figure it out. I just know today I can stand with confident assurance that God chose me. And therefore, if God chose me, he wants to choose other people, which will say to me, okay, I don't know who God has chosen, but now God has given me the message of reconciliation to go out to those who have been chosen but who haven't heard this message. You see, God does the choosing, but God is going to use us, the messenger, to reveal his message to those who are still waiting to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it will only come out of, holy cow, God chose me. How did God do it? God did it because, man, he used a guy in my senior year of high school to teach me and show me the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, God could do it a thousand ways, but God's primary way of redeeming lost people is through his church you and me but it comes out of understanding the grace and the peace and the multitude of God's grace mercy and peace in my life that therefore I would go and share the gospel with people and so for us this morning I'm telling you election is a huge deal that has gotten a bad rap from a lot of people but election is a great 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 thing because election points always back to God. Not to us, O God, not to us, but unto you, unto your unfailing love, the psalmist says. And so when I understand that that election is all about the glory of God, then I will fall on my face and this place will become a true place of worship that, holy cow, God did for me what I could not do for myself. And we'd come in to Powell's Chapel, we'd come in on a Sunday morning, not because we're special, not because we've done anything, but we have this recognition, God deserves all the glory because, man, I put my two feet on the ground and God has redeemed me today. And I'd come and I'd worship that all day long. And I'd want to have an investment in with the God of the universe that chose me before I ever chose him. But that will lead me to a life of ongoing obedience and ongoing life 
of what we call sanctification, the process of becoming more and more and more and more and more like Christ Jesus. And when we do that, it will happen to us. We will live in exile from a world that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. When we begin to be obedient in the world, the promise is, and we'll see in the rest of this book, when we live a life of obedience, we live a life of repentance, we live a life of sanctification, persecution will happen to us. It just will. If Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived a perfect life and was persecuted every day that he walked the planet and ultimately be beyond that of a human resemblance, you would not even know it was a human dying on the cross. He was beat for his perfection. He was beat for his sanctification. He was ultimately beat so that his blood would cover you and me and God would choose you and me and be covered by his blood. If we don't celebrate that this morning, then I don't know what else there is to celebrate. Uh, the saddest part for me is that all over the U.S. today, uh, I'll say it this way, I, I hope you're Tennessee fans, I'm not, uh, I'll probably get crucified for that, that's all right, but last night 150,000 people were cheering for 18 to 22 year olds carrying a stupid football up and down a field, and they went crazy over that. How much more crazy do we celebrate God's redemptive work in our life? You see, when we begin to celebrate all that God has done for us in choosing us, then it's exactly what I said last week. Then missions will, uh, will need to happen because worship is happening. When we begin to worship, worship is an expression of missions. And people will come to know Christ the way we worship a holy God as we remember what God has done for us. That's what Peter says in closing. May God's grace and peace be multiplied in you. Let us be reminded today all that God has done for us in his sovereignty and his foreknowledge and choosing us and drawing us to himself. Let us pray. God, you are a powerful God. You are the only God that can call dead people to life and you accomplish that through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so God, in these moments, as we sit here and we ponder these things and we reflect on these things we reflect on the doctrine of election i pray holy spirit that you would invoke in us a spirit of celebration a spirit of worship that says oh god thank you for doing for me what i could not do for myself thank you for this great doctrine god this great reminder that you are all powerful all knowing and all in control and your great wisdom you chose I don't understand why you chose me, but yet in your perfect perfection you did. God, I pray for us as individuals and collectively as a church that we be reminded that you chose us from death to life and we rejoice in that today. The beautiful part of all this, God, it's all finished already. It's all been accomplished and let us rejoice in that so grateful for you God and all that you're doing for us and in us continue to lead us as a people to truly be a people that will celebrate your goodness, your power your mercy as Peter closes may grace
peace be multiplied to you. Amen.